Hi, I'm Mike Morse. You're listening to or watching another episode of Open Mic Home Edition. Thank you for being with us today. We have a very interesting guest today. Professor Eve Primus is a University of Michigan Law School professor who has a very interesting background in the public defender world, dealing with wrongful convictions and exonerations. And as you know, we've done several podcasts with Aaron Salter and Kenny Winenko and Carl Marlinga and a juror from that trial. And I've been watching multiple movies. I've been reading books. I've been having meetings, trying to figure all this out. And Professor Primus was nice enough to agree to come on the show today to talk about all these things and see if we could find some solutions or understand what's happening in this country. Joining us this morning is Mike Morse, Detroit's top 30. Mike Morse. Mike Morse is in here to tell us about the backpack giveaway. Adapt and adapt and change things up a little bit every year. Let's bring on Professor Primus. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, I'm so happy you're here. Thank you for agreeing to be here. I see you're probably working from home. I think most of us are working from home these days. What's the deal for the law school in the uh, fall? What are they saying? Uh, it's still a little bit up in the air. It sounds like they're going to try to do a mix of socially distant, live, smaller classes and online, larger classes with the option of students staying online if they feel that they need to for their own safety or safety of others reasons. Right, giving them a choice. Well, you know, I, you heard my intro. We talked a little bit offline. I, uh, being a lawyer for almost 30 years, I'm, I'm learning more and more about wrongful convictions and these exonerations and the innocent projects that are at your prestigious law school at Cooley. There's, there's hundreds of them around the country now, I believe. This, the, the original one in, at Cardoza University, Barry Sheck in New York. I've been reading and watching and asking questions and it's absolutely heartbreaking what's happening in this country what's been happening for dozens of years and you were a public defender you've worked in other cities representing people uh with major crimes and you've seen wrongful convictions you've 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 i don't know how much you've worked on these cases but i want to get into that um you know, we, we, we talked real briefly about the movie Just Mercy that I recommend to our audience, which um, really does a nice job of showing one particular case. But that case, tell me if I'm wrong, had a lot of the same things that I see. Ineffective trial counsel, a jailhouse snitch, crooked cops, conservative or racist judges. Um it almost had the the, the whole gamut uh, of the Kenny Wanenko trial, the Aaron Salter trial, and so many other trials that I've been reading about and talking to people about. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to hear about uh, briefly your background in the criminal justice system. I know you're now a, a professor at U of M and your experience with wrongful convictions and how big of a problem is this throughout our country? So I began my legal career as a public defender in the state of Maryland, which is where I am from. Before I went to law school, I was actually a criminal investigator for the Public Defender Service in Washington, D.C. Uh, went to law school, became a public defender in Maryland, where I did trial work and appellate work and some post-conviction work before 
coming up to Michigan uh, to teach criminal law and criminal procedure at the University of Michigan Law School, while also still working in the practice world, first with cases still in Maryland and then in Michigan. So I've seen a lot uh, in terms of how the system treats criminal defendants, uh, whether they are innocent or guilty. Um, I've also seen a bunch with the wrongful convictions, and I was there when Dave Moran joined the law school and began the innocence uh, clinic at the law school, which has led to the exoneration of a number of people throughout the state of Michigan already. I hear it's the number one program in the country. Um, Kenny Waninko told me that yesterday. Is that is that your understanding? It's a, I mean, it's an amazing program. I mean, it depends on how you're ranking these things. There are DNA exoneration projects. There are non-DNA exoneration projects. Michigan's project is a non-DNA exoneration project, and they do a phenomenal job. Uh, the students work throughout the year investigating, reinvestigating cases often because there was not an adequate investigation to begin with, finding information of actual innocence and highlighting that through the judicial system, or sometimes, you know, trying to reach out to prosecutors to convince them to revisit cases right with the with the new integrity units and, and i'd love to yes. be able to get in that today too but let's let's start at the beginning over 80 mm percent -hmm. of people accused of capital crimes such as murders and rapes and, and, and really significant crimes are being put into the system with a court-appointed attorney so for people who don't know, I mean, these are these describe your opinion of court appointed attorneys and, and, and throughout the country. What have you seen? So I would say over 80 percent of people who are charged with any crime, whether it's a misdemeanor or a felony offense, will wind up being represented by a public defender or a court appointed lawyer, in part because we predominantly charge people who are poor, who can't afford to hire lawyers for themselves. And the Constitution, the Sixth Amendment, guarantees the right to counsel to individuals at state expense. And so we have a requirement constitutionally to give people lawyers to defend themselves. And our entire adversarial system is predicated on the idea that you will have a zealous, committed defender to bring to light information that might be exculpatory, that might demonstrate you didn't commit something you were accused of, or to point out problems with the nature of the investigation that the prosecution has performed in a case. So the pro in theory, this is a wonderful idea. And I think the people who go into public defender types of jobs go into them often with an idealistic idea of giving a voice to the voiceless, of being a part of what is, in essence, a civil rights movement, because the most of the people who are accused of crime in this country are black and brown. Um, and so people get into this with the right ideas and the right motives, and they often wind up getting crushed by the system because there is an inherent structural problem in the way that we fund or rather underfund indigent defense delivery systems around the country. So I can give you, just to give you a little bit of a sense of the scope of the problem. Back in the 1970s, the American Bar Association did a study where they tried to figure out, okay, if you were going to be a lawyer who was appointed to represent poor people, what's the maximum number of cases that you should be given that we think you can effectively handle. And mind you, this is in the 70s, long before we had DNA, long before we had a number of the more complicated forensic programs that we have now, long before we had 
email and computers and all of the documents that will then be generated as part of any lawsuit or any investigation. So these numbers, if anything, are are larger than they should be given current conditions. But even back in the 1970s, they said, look, if you're going to represent alleged misdemeanors, people who are accused of smaller misdemeanor level crimes, you should handle no more than 400 of those in a year if you want to be an effective defense lawyer. And if you're going to represent people who are accused of felonies, the more serious crimes, you should handle no more than 150 felony cases a year. This was the standard the American Bar Association promulgated. Now, if you go around the country right now, you will see lawyers being forced to handle astronomically high caseloads. But if you look around the country, what you will see is that because of the lack of funding provided for indigent defense representation that there are lawyers around the country who are handling astronomically high caseloads. So for example, in Atlanta and Chicago, you've got lawyers who've been handling over 2,000 misdemeanor cases in a year. Wow. You've got lawyers in Miami handling over 700 felony cases in a year. There was one study that in New Orleans, lawyers were handling 19,000 misdemeanor cases in a year. That's like one seven, lawyer. One lawyer. That's like seven minutes a case. Seven minutes. So let's talk. Let's stop for one second on that point. For for listeners who don't understand the difference between a public defender and a court appointed lawyer, yeah, please do a quick uh, explanation of that, Professor. Sure. So. As I said before, you have to provide lawyers for people who can't afford them. That's part of the Sixth Amendment constitutional right. But there's no mandate as to how a state should provide for lawyers. And there are sort of three dominant models that have emerged for how states will provide for lawyers for people who are poor in criminal cases. One is the development of what we call a public defender office. This is a group of lawyers who are hired and paid a salary, who are housed in a building together, and they take the majority sometimes of cases in that jurisdiction and represent individuals who are accused of crime. They become professionals in the area. It is their full-time job. That's one model. Another model is what we would call an assigned counsel system, where the judges in the jurisdiction or some court manager has a list of lawyers who have either volunteered to be on a panel list to take on these cases or who are sometimes conscripted into taking on these cases. And they sort of go down and they assign them. And those lawyers are paid usually an hourly rate or sometimes a per event rate. Like this is how much you get for a plea or this is how much you get for a trial or this is how much you get for this kind of case. And that is how indigent defense delivery is provided in that jurisdiction. There are huge problems with a lot of assigned counsel systems because the amount that the lawyers are often paid can be abysmally low. You've got assigned counsel systems in this country where lawyers are paid maximum of $40 an hour in some places, and caps are imposed on how much they're entitled to earn in a given case. So if you have like a $500 cap, for the amount that you can earn in a given case, you have no financial incentive to do anything beyond the number of hours that gets you to $500. You're financially better off if you 
get rid of that case and take another case where you can start over again until you get to your fee cap. So there's all sorts of financial problems with various assigned counsel systems, but that's another way that some jurisdictions will do it. And then the final way that some jurisdictions will provide for indigent defense representation is through a contract system, um, which means there's a lawyer or group of lawyers who will bid on the indigent defense contract. And Typically, because city and state budgets are often tight, the lowest bid is given the contract. So these flat fee, low bid contract systems are inherently problematic because these individuals are offering to take on all of the indigent defense cases that come through the jurisdiction for the lowest amount possible, which often means they have full-time jobs in addition to taking on these indigent defense cases on the side that they have to take in order to make a living wage. And you can imagine what that means in terms of the amount of time that is reserved for or spent on indigent defense representation in low-bid contract systems. There are various places that do hybrids, but those are the three basic models, the public defender system, the assigned counsel system, and the contract system. And just to put in my two cents, you know, when I first got out of law school in 1992, I had no cases, I had no clients, and what did I do? I went and knocked on my local district court's door and said, hi, I'm a new lawyer, can I please have a, uh, can I get on your assignment list so I can have dinner tonight? Mm -hmm. And they started giving me drunk driving cases. Mm -hmm. And I was paid a maximum of $150 for two court appearances, plus all the other work that you had to do in the case. And, you know, I was thrilled to get those assignments. I was thrilled to learn. But I hear what you're saying. If this was my only living, which at the time it kind of was, I think I was still living at home. For, maybe not. But, but you know, I, I this was how I started. I was getting other cases in the personal injury field, but I wanted to, you know, get my feet wet. I think a lot of baby lawyers do that. And there is, you can't, it's very hard to make a good living doing that. So like you were saying earlier, you have to take on lots and lots of cases. And of course, if you have hundreds of cases and you're running around and you have seven minutes to spend, you can't give somebody good justice. And all you want is a plea. And out of the 10 or 15 or 20 I did, I don't think I tried one case. It wasn't my decision. I was looking for those defenses, but 100% of the people blew a high level and uh, they didn't have a defense and they wanted a plea and they didn't want to go to trial. But that's that's obviously different. But, you know, it's it's inherently a problem because in the cases that I've been researching, and I haven't talked to anybody about this, but it seems that the common thread is that that, but I mean, there's nothing that lawyers can do to protect in the beginning stages about bad cops, bad prosecutors, you know, bad lineups. That all happens before the lawyer's involved. Mm -hmm. Once the lawyer gets involved, the first lawyer, that's to me where all the problems start. Because once you're convicted, all those appeal, appeals. The presumption of innocence is gone. Yeah. Gone. And, 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 and to try to get a court of appeals to listen. I mean, every criminal conviction almost gets appealed. So how do those court appeal, appeal judges figure out which ones really had bad counsel? Because everybody claims my counsel sucked. But in these cases that I'm researching, you know, Kenny Wanenko, nine years falsely imprisoned. He had three bad lawyers. Albert Makowski, 
uh, Lawrence Pepler, who I believe both lost their licenses or were close to losing their licenses. And then they got a he got an appellate counsel that he paid for who missed oral argument. This Ken Karam, he missed his oral argument for the Court of Appeals and they didn't give him they didn't give it back to him. So. I mean, I'm like watching this thinking I'm mortified. Yeah. This guy spends nine years in prison with these horrible things that happened to him, all these stories. So do you I mean, what percentage is that the problem to these wrongful convictions uh, is that bad first lawyer? I mean, much of wrongful convictions results from bad lawyering, because if you had good lawyering, the lawyers should have found the information to exonerate individuals. And I will say, even independent of wrongful convictions, there are a lot of problems of overcharging in this country, where prosecutors will take an episode and add and stack all these charges onto it that make it sound so much worse than what it is in order to induce pleas. And you need lawyers to fight against that. Like you need lawyers to preserve people's rights, even if they've done something wrong. Um, So it's beyond even the wrongful convictions. And the problem is that a lot of times you have well-intentioned lawyers who are structurally just unable to put in the amount of time, or you also have structural systems that don't provide them with adequate training, that don't provide them with adequate supervision. Like I would ask you when you signed up for those DWI cases, when you first started as a lawyer, like how much did they give you in the way of information about how to navigate criminal court or what kinds of defenses you could raise? Or was there a mentor who had criminal defense experience who could help you walk through those cases? I mean, when you have sometimes like real estate lawyers or tax lawyers who are being conscripted and handed these criminal cases. It's like saying, look, would you go to the foot doctor and say, perform heart surgery on me? No, right? The foot doctor went to medical school, but he's not a heart surgeon. And same thing here, like law is specialized. So you can't just hand somebody who hasn't practiced in an area, a case in that area without any training, any mentorship and without time for them to figure it out and expect that the results are going to be okay. Well, to answer your question, zero. Luckily, <laughs> I was sharing space with a, a very uh, well-seasoned criminal defense attorney who liked me, and I was able to ask a million questions to. Um, and, and, and when people want to plead guilty, it's not the most complicated thing in the world. You, you learn it, you read about it, you ask questions. If you're, if you're tenacious and, and semi-smart, you, you figure it out. But, you know, these were not life and death death situations. Not one of my clients actually spent a night in prison or jail. Um, these were not big, big cases. And I, and, and I don't know how the training is these days. And I do know that from what I've read, these lawyers are, are, are cross-examining witnesses for a minute or two. They're mm-hmm. not calling alibi witnesses. They're not even thinking about DNA. Um, they're not... They don't have investigators because they can't afford to go get investigators. Right. Uh, which is which is people don't understand what you know, how important it is. I mean, look, defense lawyers aren't usually the ones going out and taking statements. Aren't usually the ones going over and you know canvassing a neighborhood, uh, uh, looking for new evidence. That's usually an investigator job. Now I've done that on my cases, uh, but most. You know, lawyers don't have the time to do that, don't have the knowledge to do that. I, like you, I I volunteered when I was in college at the public defender's office as an investigator in Tucson. Fascinating. I mean, I was 19 or 20 years old going to the prison, going to the jails, 
interviewing witnesses, interviewing um, people waiting trial. I mean, that was like one reason why I went to law school, but that was, as, as I'm sure you would agree with, like incredible groundwork for mm-hmm. what we do, for what we do now. Yeah. So go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, a lot of this also depends on where you are. So Michigan has a particularly bad history when it comes to the right to effective assistance of counsel. So Michigan has a system that is county by county, which means every county in this state gets to decide how it wants to provide for indigent defense representation. And Historically, public defender offices where you had career defenders with knowledge and information who would train and supervise other individuals were not the norm in Michigan. The status of indigent defense representation in Michigan was so bad in 2008 that the American Bar Association has a section called the National Legal Aid and Defender Association that conducts um, inquiries and investigations into the provision of indigent defense services in different systems. And in 2008, that agency issued a report that was called a race to the bottom and described how Michigan in this country was 44th in per capita spending on indigent defense. Like we were down there with Texas and a bunch of Southern states that historically just did not provide for effective assistance for defendants in the criminal system. There are amazing things if you read that report about what was going on in and around this state. So, for example, in Ottawa County, there were a bunch of lawyers that just referred to criminal court for criminal defendants as McJustice Day because of the speed with which people were just processed into prison. So you would just, I mean, people were told of their charges. They were pled out with no lawyers all on the same day and sent off to cages. And that was the norm. And so there were just like many, many horrible things detailed in this report about how our system drastically underfunded, didn't train, didn't supervise. And as a result, there was horribly ineffective assistance around the state, if not outright just denial of lawyers in some in some places. And so what happened was the American Civil Liberties Union, after that report came out, the ACLU of Michigan filed a lawsuit against the state, basically saying, you are systematically violating the Sixth Amendment right to counsel for people who are poor throughout this state. And there was a lot of back and forth with respect to that litigation. And ultimately, what came out of that litigation was the Michigan Indigent Defense Commission was created. And so this is a big new thing that has started to happen in the last 20 years in lots of states and counties and places around this country, where when there is this dilapidated, terrible indigent defense delivery system, it gets documented in some way, whether it's by the ABA or another group called the Spangenberg Group or various places that will go around and issue these reports that really shed some light on just how bad it is. And then lawsuits start to happen because people now have the data to support an argument that says there's serious constitutional problems with the way lawyers are being appointed, trained and compensated. And then you get a commission established, sometimes by the governor, sometimes by the state legislature, sometimes by the judiciary. And that commission is charged with trying to assess the nature of the problems in the state and recommend ways to fix it. So the Michigan Indigent Defense Commission has been doing yeoman's work to try and deal with this problem and issue standards that each county then has to come up with a way to comply with 
to try and raise the level of representation throughout the state to get to constitutionally acceptable levels. Part of the problem is this is a very slow process because you got a lot of different counties throughout the state with a lot of different concerns with respect to how they're going to handle their indigent defense delivery. And the one thing the Michigan Indigent Defense Commission can't do is create a statewide public defender agency, which honestly is the best way to think about organizing indigent defense delivery because you create a professional entity statewide that can combine resources, that can capitalize on the economies of scale and do training and do supervision and spread resources between and among counties. But we can't do that because it's the one thing the Indigent Defense Commission doesn't have the power to do. So they have to do it slowly. And there's been some indication of progress, right? In 2015, when the Indigent Defense Commission really started started going, there were only, I think, six counties in Michigan that even had a public defender office. The vast majority of counties in Michigan were systems like we talked about before, were just like individual lawyers were assigned to cases and paid abysmally and didn't get the training and didn't get the supervision and had financial incentives to just get rid of these cases as fast as they could. And it was a very bad system. And so we now have more than doubled that amount just in the span of the last five years of public defender offices, getting some really wonderful organizations started in different counties around the state to try and deal with the indigent defense delivery problems that we have. Yeah, I, I saw that there was uh, $80, 90000000 million mm-hmm. paid. Um, I think it was under when Snyder was our governor mm-hmm. and like Wayne County got a big chunk of it and they set up, they brought in an outside agency yes. from New York yes. to, to run it. And I've gone through that website and it's an impressive website. There's 30 or 40 employees. They all look happy. It's a very diverse group. Lots of lawyers, investigators, uh, health, uh, you know, psych- uh, psychi- psychologists and social mm-hmm. workers. I mean, it looked impressive. Uh, I don't, you know, I wonder when we'll know how good of a job they're doing or if it is better than what was happening. I don't know what percentage of cases they're getting versus uh, the, the mm-hmm. court appointed individual people who mm-hmm. who have been getting them for years and who've been made a living on it for years, become friends with the judges you know, get those referrals to the judges. Have you heard anything about that Wayne County program? Yes, absolutely. Um, I know a number of people who are involved with it and it's an, it's an excellent program. Um, I will say it's a much, I mean, it has to be an improvement over what was going on in Wayne County before. I mean, one of my favorite stories to explain just how bad indigent defense delivery was in this state was from a number of years ago when I first came up to Michigan to become a law professor. And I, along with a clinical law professor here by the name of Kim Thomas and then Dean of Clinics Bridget McCormick, who is now the Michigan State Supreme Court Chief Justice, the three of us decided we might want to do a study about constitutional rights and how they play out in misdemeanor cases. So the three of us went on a trip to Wayne County to watch a day of misdemeanor dockets in the criminal court in Detroit. And we sat down and between the three of us, we we had over 20 years of combined public defender experience. And we sat there for hours and it took the three of us over two hours to realize that the person at the front of the room who had been running that docket, who had been calling people up and giving them offers and pleading them out and sending their cases off for continuances and doing everything was not the prosecutor, 
but was the person who was supposed to be the defense lawyer. It was clear the individual was meeting oh these God. people for the very first time. They had in Detroit a system that was called the House Counsel System, where lawyers basically were hired to be house counsel for a day, meaning they'd show up in court. They were paid a flat amount for like a half a day or a day's work. And people would come in and they would meet them and they would just represent them right there. They were having public conversations in the courtroom for the very first time and talking to them like a prosecutor would talk to someone like, here's the offer. It's the best you're going to get. Like, you know, do this, take this plea, do that. And we were aghast upon oh, realizing no. that that was the level of representation that was being afforded to poor people of color who were accused of crime in Detroit. So, I mean, any system is going to be an improvement over that kind of system. But the Neighborhood Defender Service of Harlem, which is the outfit you mentioned in New York that got the contract to do indigent defense representation in Detroit, has amazing leadership, uh, lots of public defender experience, zealous representatives from who've come from other high-profile defender offices, not just the Neighborhood Defender Service oh. in Harlem. They've also got supervisors from the Public Defender Service in Washington, D.C., and from other places around the country who've come in and are, have really like have a holistic approach to the way in which defenders should operate, which means they want to look at the problems that got people into the system and try and help stop the revolving door of people coming in and through the system, which means they're going to work with social workers. And ultimately, they're going to bring on teams of lawyers to deal with housing problems and immigration problems. And so they can think about dealing with everyone's problems all together and try and stop uh, recidivism from being a problem in the jurisdiction. But they're new. As of right now, they only handle 25% of the felony cases in Detroit. So, okay. right. So that was, you know, there's still the majority of cases are not handled by the Neighborhood Defender Service in Detroit. I assume, I think the plan is over time as they get instantiated that they will start to take on more and more and expand. Um, but a lot of that will depend on whether there's funding that is allocated for them to do that, like hiring new lawyers will cost more money. Um, and also like what their what kind of community relationships they're able to develop and what they're able to do with respect to the judiciary. Because one of the big things that's very hard about what is going on right now is it's going to be a culture shock to a system that was 44th in per capita spending in the country where lawyers were not doing what should be done to provide zealous representation to now have these public defender offices coming into 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 being and have lawyers start to try to make these kinds of zealous arguments, they're going to hit resistance. They're going to hit resistance sure. from the judges who are used to just being able to process people into prison without even having to look or glance, right? They're going to hit resistance from the prosecutors who are not used to having adversaries who are adversaries in the system. Who care? People who right. care. Yeah. And they're going to have to navigate that kind of, of cultural shift. You just gave me my next podcast. Who do you who's who who runs the Detroit office? Anybody you know down there? Yeah, her name is Shante Shante Parker. She's phenomenal. Um, she has been a public defender, I think, for almost ten years. Don't quote. I wouldn't quote me on that, but I know she went through the uh, Gideon's Promise 
training program, which is a phenomenal program that is run throughout the South um, that is designed to raise the level of representation in dilapidated public defender systems. And she, as a graduate of that program, was a public defender after that, then went up to New York uh, and was a public defender for the legal, um, the Neighborhood Defender Service in Harlem, and then came over uh, to Detroit to run the office here. And she is an amazing community builder. She's put together a wonderful leadership team. And it's a really wonderful thing for Michigan to have a flagship defender office like that. Uh, part of the issue, I think that is always going to be hard when you have any outside agency or outside leadership coming in, is the integration with what was the Legal Aid and Defender Association, which was the loose group of individuals that handled indigent defense representation in Detroit prior to the Neighborhood Defender Service of Harlem coming sure. into Detroit. So I think there are some lawyers from LADA that are now employed by the Neighborhood Defender Service and others who aren't. And, you know, you've got to come into a system and bring about a cultural shift while also like understanding that there will be people who say you're an outsider um, and who will be hostile to you for that. And we all know that the politics of Detroit are complicated. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's a lot that is going to have to be done. But I think she and her team are doing a great job so far. And a ton of community outreach, which is so important because a defender office is only as good as the a trust that it can develop with the community that it represents. That's amazing. Well, I, I will learn more. Uh, I will get. I will get more uh, information on that. Um, so, you know, with twenty five percent going to them, you know, the, like you mentioned, people are going knock. They're, they're taking money out of lawyers' pockets who 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 used to do the system the way that everybody wanted to do the system. So it'll be interesting to see if there's been a clash to see what kind of pushback they have. Um, but. You know, what what experience have you had, um, you know, with with a court appointed attorneys? What what kind of stories do you have? I mean, I know you mentioned the seven minute thing and, and yeah. that story is pretty horrible. Yeah. Um, but, you know, working so close, working at Mich University of Michigan Law School with with an amazing innocence program. What have you seen and have you seen common characteristics Um throughout these cases, like if you had to pick one or two or three things that keep happening just to, you know, kind of bring light to these things. So everybody who watches this can look for those things. If you're a juror, if you're a, you know, if you're, if you're a family member, because some of these men that I've, that I've interviewed, they had nowhere to go. They didn't mm -hmm. know how to raise their hand. You know, um, Kenny Wanako's uh, second court appointed lawyer had two days to get ready for, a for, yeah. for a rape case. Um, and Judge yeah. Schwartz didn't care. And yeah. Kenny didn't know who to call, didn't know how to raise his hand and call that, push that emergency button. Um, you know, how do you bring in the cavalry? And I'm struggling with yeah. that too as a lawyer because this is happening every day. It happened to Aaron Salter. They, 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 I mean, there's horrible stories there that, that, that we don't have time to go into, but he didn't know. He was getting railroaded by an attorney, too, who was who yeah. doing drugs and who eventually got disbarred soon after with with crooked prosecutors who only want a conviction. So, yeah. So I think I would say I have a couple sort of background things to say for it. I think it's very hard to put the responsibility on someone who is accused of crime to 
know when their defense lawyer is not providing effective assistance and to have to speak up to do that. Like our entire court system is a really scary place. Like if you ever go into court, everything is regulated, like where you can stand, where you can sit, when you can speak. And it's all set up in this way to sort of silence people from speaking out of turn. So for a client to be able to stand up and say, I'm upset about my lawyer not interviewing my alibi witnesses, or I'm upset because my lawyer hasn't done this, requires that person to sort of like interject himself or herself into the carefully choreographed courtroom scene. And that's a frightening thing for a lot of people who don't have any legal training to do. So I first, I will say to those who can do that, who will stand up and say, I don't think my lawyer is doing his or her job, like they they really deserve some praise for having the courage to interrupt the court system and be able to speak for themselves that way. Um, but I think a bigger problem is just it's everybody in the system who is complicit in this, right? Part of the problem is that you have defense lawyers who think it's okay not to investigate, who think it's okay not to challenge junk science, who think it's okay not to do any legal research in advance of court or just show up and think they can wing it and provide an effective defense. Part of the problem is prosecutors who are fully aware of which lawyers are winging it and not doing investigation and not challenging these cases. And part of their duty as a prosecutor is to see that justice is done. And part of that includes that the defendant has adequate representation, like the defendant is a part of the community too. And the prosecutor should represent everyone in that community. So when there's a situation where you have a defense lawyer who says to a judge, I just got this case on Friday. I can't be prepared for trial on Monday. The prosecutor should agree that that's not okay. The prosecutor should say, your honor, I think you need to give the defense lawyer some time. And that's hard because the prosecutor may have witnesses who would be inconvenienced or the prosecutor wants to move things along towards speedy resolution as well. But it's the right thing to do if you're actually interested in justice. And you should have judges who actually are aware and willing to say, look, not on my watch. Are we going to just railroad people into prison? That's hard because they have backlog dockets and they don't like, you know, it will hurt their processing systems, right? If they slow sure. things down, but it's part of their job too. I would say, look, if you're a juror, I mean, there are other things that we can point to. If what you're looking at, I, I know a lot of your program has been focused on wrongful convictions. Um, and so like there are certain characteristics of wrongful convictions that jurors can be attuned to. So for example, in the first 250 exonerations that were documented, 76% of them involved mistaken eyewitness identification. Wow. Right? So jurors, when you are presented with a case that relies incredibly heavily on eyewitness identification evidence, you should ask yourself, look, has this been, is there a lawyer here who is pointing out the conditions under which this identification happened, right? There are a ton of studies about the tricks that our memories will play on us. We are notoriously bad 
at estimating things like height and weight and other physical features in a vacuum. Our memory fades over time. Our ability to identify, remember, and retell accurately is shaped and influenced by a number of different factors. Some of them are things about the environment where we, the, the situation in which we are able to make an ID, like, you know, is it dark? Is it light? Is the suspect wearing a disguise? Uh, is it a cross-racial identification, which is notoriously difficult for suspects, um, for um, individuals to do? Um, part of it are what, what we would call things that the police or the system can control. Like, did the police have a suggestive lineup, right? How many people were in that lineup? Did anybody stand out in that lineup, right? What was said to the suspect during the lineup? If you are a juror in a case and a lineup identification is coming in without the defense lawyer asking any of these questions, it should set off some potential alarm bells, right? Like that's a huge part of what has led to wrongful convictions. Another huge contributing factor to wrongful conviction is flawed forensic analyses. So of the first 330 exonerations in this country, 71% of them, 234 cases, had, quote, like scientific evidence that was ostensibly indicating that the individual was guilty. And it turned out to not be legitimate science. Most of it's not DNA, Right. Um, it's a lot of stuff like bite mark evidence and hair and fiber analysis. Right. That th these things that seem scientific, but when they actually are analyzed under a legitimate microscope, turn out not to be accurate indicia that can link somebody to having committed a crime. But 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 on that point, if 80 percent of these pe are, of people are, are getting court appointed attorneys, it's my understanding that there's no budget for expert witnesses, like very, very little. Now, tell me if I'm wrong on that. But in order to smartly contest uh, any type of science, calling it junk science, filing Daubert motions, you need an expert usually who, in my cases, cost thousands of dollars per case to come in and say that bite mark evidence, that tire evidence, that footprint evidence, that blood evidence is not accurate because so how do you how do people um um adequately you know try to to get this thrown out without without money to do so part of the constitutional right to effective assistance of counsel includes state funding for necessary experts so have you seen if, that have you seen that work when they found motions to get a good expert to come in and 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 uh try to get this stuff thrown out? Well, I mean, it depends on where you are, right? Like you have to document. I mean, you got to do some homework and try and document why you need the expert and how it's situated in the case and how important the forensic science is. And yeah, there's only so much you can do. I mean, one problem is, look, if the judge is going to deny you your constitutional rights, you can have a great lawyer, right? If the judge is going to prevent you from being able to make your defense, that's a problem. And it's a separate problem from the effectiveness of the lawyer. But I mean, I will say I have also seen very effective defense lawyers who can through cross a combination of cross-examination and the use of judicial notice 
and the calling of police officers and sometimes people with like with police officers can sometimes be cloaked as experts and sometimes not depending on you know how things are set up and what the court does but you can play into their expertise and bring out flaws about this science that can raise doubt even if you have a judge who's rogue enough not to allow you to have the the expert assistance that you're constitutionally entitled to so there are still ways to try and raise challenges and to point it out so so often what I see in a lot of courts is like this ballistics report just comes in and it's like it's like mana from heaven. Right. right? Stipulated. Like, stipulated. Yes, right. We like nobody cha- nobody challenges it. Or there's some, you know, I had a, a I had a case. So I, I do um, some volunteer lawyering with the state appellate defender office here in Michigan. And one of the first cases that I got when I was working for the state appellate defender office was a homicide trial during which a court appointed lawyer in Flint um, li- did nothing nothing to challenge the admission into evidence at this man's trial of the fact that he ostensibly had gunpowder residue on his hands. There was a test that the police performed the night that he was arrested where they rubbed his hands with some paper. They put it into a bag with an ampule and a solution. They shake it up. And if it turns blue, it's supposed to test positive for gunpowder. So at his trial, a completely circumstantial case. There were no eyewitnesses. There are no confessions, right? This is a completely sort a drive-by shooting with no witnesses, right? So this is one of the key pieces of the prosecution's evidence is this. He had gunpowder on his hands the night of this alleged homicide. Well, if you look just, just, dig a little under the surface, what that lawyer could have seen is this wasn't a gunpowder residue test. It was a nitrates test. Do you know how many things nitrates are in? Yeah. Nitrates are in gunpowder. They're also in fertilizer, cosmetics, urine, like all sorts of other products. And so all that that test showed was that that this man potentially had nitrates and the Michigan Supreme Court had already like gotten rid of these tests in the 1980s as junk, but nobody challenged it, right? Wow. And so this just comes in completely on like without a challenge of any kind. And now the jury's being told on the night that this crime is committed, the defendant fired a weapon. And that is just not what the science showed. And so part of this is, I mean, this is hard for lawyers because they're not scientists, but part of being a defense lawyer is knowing when there's a piece of, quote, scientific evidence that's against your client, you got to research that. You got to figure out what the science is, what the law is, because science sounds really persuasive to juries. It sounds like it's a match, right? Like that this says that this is the person. And a lot of times, a lot of these forensics tests were just created by police. They weren't created by scientists. They were created by police officers to try and solve crimes. And they have almost no scientific validity to them. And so if you don't know to challenge them, they just come in and they wind up convicting the wrong people. So I would say like that's another area where wrongful convictions are prevalent, right? Mistaken eyewitness identification, bad science. Um, And then you've got false confessions, which is another very big area where wrongful convictions can occur. And so if you're going to, in the the, same statistics, right, in the first 250 exonerations in this country, 40 of those 
were involved false confessions. Like it happens a lot in homicide cases. Um, and a lot of it comes from the tactics that the police will use to get a confession. Like you get these incredibly long confessions where the police are feeding details of the crime to the suspect and saying, we've got all this scientific evidence, whether they do or they don't, that implicates you in having committed this crime and they wear people down. And then what winds up happening is the suspect's like, oh, I, well, I guess I did this. And they parrot back the details right. like, that the police like the making them. of them, like the making of a murderer. Scene yes, absolutely. I'm sure you saw. I did. And everybody watching this saw. <laughs> I mean, that was some crazy stuff and that illustrated you know taking a witness so far who you know was not dealing with full mental capabilities and yeah. what a sad case that was but that illustrates exactly what you're talking about yeah, well, Brandon Dassey, it's a perfect example of this problem because a lot of times these tactics are used on vulnerable populations. You've got kids who are taught to defer to authority figures. You've got people with uh, emotional or mental disabilities who are easily confused or tricked into saying things. And you put this together and, yeah, you're going to get somebody who can make a false statement. So, I mean, that's another potential problem that comes up in a lot of exonerations. And and then the last one in the sort of, I would say, like the big five, if you want to think about what causes wrongful convictions are the mistaken eyewitness identifications, the bad science, the false confessions, the bad defense lawyers, and then official misconduct is the last one. So this comes in a couple of different forms, like 37% of the DNA exoneration cases in this country involve suppression of exculpatory evidence by the prosecution or the police. Right. Like they find something that doesn't don't support their case and they don't turn it over. So let's, let's, talk, yeah. about that. let's yeah. talk about that for a second. Yeah. I've, I've never handled a real criminal case in my life. So mm-hmm. just bear with me. I, I, but I am. I'm watching these movies. I'm reading these books. These prosecutors want to win at all costs. The good ones, the Carl Marlingas of the world believe in justice. But a lot of prosecutors, and I have a lot of prosecutor friends, so I'm excluding all them from this equation. But people want to win inherently, and their job is to get convictions, even though they say our job is to get justice. And police officers, I mean, you know, I also have a lot of police officer friends, but you know, they find something that's that they know doesn't have a lot of relevance to the case, but it's going to look bad, and it'll get it'll help the defense at trial. What? We have no say what they turn over and what they don't turn over, and it's very hard. So in these exoneration cases that I'm learning about and reading about, like let's just take Kenny Wanningo because it's such a fascinating story. Your school had a lot to do with it. They didn't – the police didn't destroy the DNA evidence that they could have. The case was over. They didn't – there wasn't a statute in place, although there is now, that they could have destroyed the DNA evidence and they didn't. So when they filed their motions to get the DNA evidence, they found the panties and the cigarettes and the shoe prints and everything they found, and it exonerated them. But they don't have to keep that. So what what safeguards are in place other than saying, I hope the police are honest, I hope the prosecutors are honest, to turn over the exculpatory evidence, to keep the exculpatory evidence, to keep the DNA and biological evidence? What protects us from that? Yeah, this is a really tough issue. And it's beyond even 
um, scientific or biological evidence. I see lots of situations where, and this goes back to the problem of the way in which defense lawyers are appointed. We now live in a world of video cameras, right? We live in a world where police officers wear body cameras a lot, where stores have security cameras. And what will happen after a crime is that the police are trained to collect all this video evidence. But it's a lot, and they aren't required. They have sort of regular um, purging cycles, right, where they don't keep everything forever. They will purge all this video evidence after a certain amount of time. When you have an overwhelmed defender agency where defenders aren't appointed right away, and they don't get involved, like sometimes people can be in prison or jail for weeks, even months before they meet their court-appointed lawyer, which is a whole nother problem with the way yeah. in which lawyers are, are, are involved in the system. But what do you think is happening to all that evidence? If nobody files a motion to preserve it, it can get erased just as part of the regular system processes. And so, yeah, there are some, this is all a matter of sub-constitutional law. Like the constitution doesn't impose a duty right, to keep this evidence for a certain period of time. This is all statutes and regulations for how long we are, will require the police to keep evidence and to maintain it. And so it, it, you could lobby your legislature to try and pass a law that requires the government to keep this evidence for longer. But beyond whether they have it, there's the question of when they find out something that doesn't support their theory of guilt, what do they do with it, whether it's mm -hmm. the police officer on the case or the prosecutor? And I think a lot depends on, A, when they find it, B, what it is, and C, who finds it. So when they find it, look, at the beginning, I think police and prosecutors are trying to piece together what happened. And the sooner that they find out information that appears to point to a different direction, the easier it is for them to pivot. Part of this is psychological. Once they've narrowed in on a suspect, once they've started to build up a case, once they sort of have that tunnel vision that this is the guy who did this, it is so much harder for them to process negative information that tends to suggest, nope, wrong guy. And we right. have these psychological defense mechanisms yeah. where we will like we will look for evidence that confirms our intuition and we will discount evidence that doesn't. And some of the evidence that comes up that suggests that someone that is exculpatory, that someone isn't the person who committed the crime is not how shall I say this? It's not like binary. It's not like, well, this is definitely evidence of innocence. This is all shades of gray. So someone will say, oh, I'm not really sure about that identification that I made. And the question in the prosecutor's mind is, is that exculpatory evidence that matters that I have to turn over to the defense lawyer? Because the legal test says they only have to turn over material that is both exculpatory meaning it tends to show the defendant is not guilty and is material to the potential outcome, which is kind of a crazy thing to ask a prosecutor so to subjective. do. Subjective. Right. So well, subjective. And, and how can they know? Like the whole point is they don't know what the defense theory is. So how can they figure out whether this would be material to the, the defense theory? So part of the problem is they can not turn over a lot of stuff by convincing themselves, oh, this is not a big deal. Like this doesn't matter. And therefore, I'm not required to turn it over. 
and that then promotes a situation where the, like the defense doesn't learn about it because they they don't need to learn about it. It's even actually worse than you think if you look at the system um, sort of writ large, because as you probably know, over 90 percent of the cases in our criminal justice system are resolved through plea bargaining. Very few cases actually go to trial. That's a whole different problem, right, that we could right. spend a whole different episode talking about. But very few cases go to trial. And the Supreme Court has not yet interpreted the prosecutor's obligation to disclose exculpatory evidence to the defense to apply pre-plea bargain. Like, it is unclear whether they even have that duty before a plea. They have it before wow. a trial, but they might not have it before a, a plea. And so it's it's they as a result, there's a lot of cases where that information doesn't get disclosed. Yeah. So you just taught me something about, you know, this exculpatory evidence that it it makes sense because when you're in a plea bargain situation, I didn't really realize that that the defense attorneys aren't saying, all right, turn over all the exculpatory evidence before we make a decision about this plea. You're saying that that happens before trial, but not necessarily before you're negotiating a plea. So it depends. The Supreme Court has has never said they have to. So it's up to like lower courts have different views on whether or not that obligation. And a lot of it depends on the prosecutor's office's policies. So that's sort of like the third thing. It matters when they find it, what it is, but also who finds it. Some prosecutor's offices are better at disclosing this information than others. Like some places have open file discovery provisions where they'll just turn over everything. Other places are much more reticent to turn anything over and they withhold everything and they fight tooth and nail and they only give what is required. So some of it is the nature of the prosecutor's office. Some of it is also just the, the laws and the rules on the books about what the defense is entitled to get. So you can have jurisdictions right. where they're entitled to get very little. I mean, people who do civil law um, who do personal injury or do like these other areas and come into the criminal world for the first time are appalled at the yeah. lack of information exchange. That's right. Me. Yes. Because like, as you know, on the civil side, you have you have depositions and you have interrogatory. You get to ask questions and demand information and like cross-examine the other side's witnesses on the record before, before trial. a trial. Yeah. Exactly. And in the criminal world that I mean, there are a very small number of states that allow for criminal depositions. Michigan is not one of them. For the most part, you don't get any of that. Like you might not even be able to get a witness list of who the prosecutor was going to call, depending on the jurisdiction. The only things you're going to get sort of as a matter of routine across the states are an expert report, if they're going to call an expert, a, a statement that the client, the defendant made, if there is a statement that the defendant made, Right. And like and that's like the bare minimum. There are some places where like that's really all you get as a matter of automatic disclosure. It, it's pathetic. I mean, I guess you also get a preliminary exam um, if it's a felony. And a lot of people waive those in this yeah, system it's because it's a lot of work. I read a statistic. It was 80 something percent of the time people are waiving the prelims. And that's a time you get to be yeah. faced with the police officers and some evidence um, to poke some holes and learn what the, uh, the prosecution is going to do. 
but that's not even being done. People yeah. don't have time to do them. People aren't getting paid enough money to do them. <laughs> yeah. The, the frequency with which people will waive preliminary exams is really troubling because the preliminary exam is a wonderful opportunity for a defense lawyer to find out more about what the prosecutor's case is against the defendant. Now, I will say sometimes there are reasons to waive a preliminary exam. They're often indicative of other big systemic problems in the criminal justice system, because a lot of times there'll be some plea offer that a prosecutor will make where they say, you have the option of taking this plea, but if we go to preliminary exam, the plea is off the table, right? And so that kind of coercive tactic is often used to get someone to waive the preliminary exam. Uh, And like prosecutors have a lot of power in the system to use those kind of tactics to induce pleas. You know, it's funny, in, in every movie you see, what happens? There's a conviction. You have great lawyers from Innocent Projects and, and, and people like you coming into the appellate office, and they go to the police station, and they, they're given a box. And that box has some kind of miraculous exculpatory evidence that they didn't turn over. Like in the movie we discussed, Just Mercy, yeah. it was those video, it was those audio tapes. And, you know, how, how often is, I mean, that's too late. I mean, it's not too late because sometimes it works out, but that's, that's, you know, that's a problem. And it seems yeah. like that's a common problem. Do you see that a lot in the cases and the exonerations in these 250, 300 exonerations? The fact that there is exculpatory evidence sitting in a box somewhere that miraculously turns up one, two, three, four, five years later when somebody's looking to, you know, to overturn a conviction. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you like 37% of the DNA exoneration cases involved the suppression of exculpatory evidence. So that is a real problem. I I mean, I think it's a problem beyond just the serious. I mean, think about it this way. In the serious cases, there's much more time, right? And often more litigation. In misdemeanor cases, which like as the vast bulk of what happens in our justice system, what you have are individuals who often have like one court appearance, the entire, like they get, they get arrested 30, 60 days, whatever it is, the jurisdiction cranks them out to like, gives them a court date down the line. They have one court date. They resolve it with a plea or a bench trial. Sometimes maybe a jury trial, depending on if they have a jury trial right on that day. And there are thousands and thousands of them that happen over the course of a year. And in those kinds of situations, there's tons of stuff that is never disclosed. I remember when I started as a baby lawyer in the Maryland Public Defender Office, you started misdemeanor court. And I remember a case where I actually had reason to think there was something exculpatory in the file. And I said to the prosecutor on the assigned court date, I want to see this information because I think there's something exculpatory. And the prosecutor refused to give me like I, to give me anything. And I said, do you have a Brady notice in the file? Because in my jurisdiction, sometimes if there was something that triggered anything exculpatory, the lawyer was supposed to put a Brady notice in the internal file and the, the refused to answer that question. So I went in front of the judge and I said, you know, your honor under Brady, which is this United States Supreme Court case. I'm entitled to exculpatory information. This is the trial date. And the prosecutor's entire response was, no joke, this is district court, which is the way of saying, like, this is misdemeanor court. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize the Constitution doesn't apply if it's a misdemeanor. You're acting like a big lawyer in in circuit court. Yeah. Yeah, They didn't like that. 
No. And it's, you know, and, and I remember the judge saying, that sounds like a really great appellate argument. And I, I oh, remember God. saying, well, judge, if it's a really good appellate argument, that means it's a really good trial argument too, right? Oh my so God. there's a lot that happens in sort of in the under the radar cases that people think aren't as important. And in reality, they wind up costing people their right to vote, their right to government subsidized housing, their right to food stamps, their right to, you know, stay in this country if they are not originally from here. Like there are so many collateral consequences of even what seem to be like smaller convictions, that when we look at the exoneration picture, which is so focused on felonies, it's got to be the tip of the iceberg in terms of the number of people who get wrongfully convicted or just get railroaded by the system. The last one that you didn't mention, and I'm curious about what the percentages is, because you know percentages off the top of your head today. Um, Every book, every movie, Everything that I read about, there's always the jailhouse snitch. Yeah, that falls in the official misconduct category as well. Yes. So, yeah. So, yeah. Tell me your favorite jailhouse snitch story. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting. There's the jailhouse snitch. I mean, it depends. If you look at the statistics from the wrongful convictions, they'll say, as I mentioned earlier, that 36% of those DNA exoneration cases involve the suppression of exculpatory evidence. About 25% of them involve the knowing use of false testimony. And 11% involve the undisclosed use of coerced witness testimony. So, I mean, jailhouse snitches have always been notoriously unreliable. Like back, I don't know if you knew about back in Los Angeles, there was a huge scandal, um, the Leslie Vernon White scandal in Los Angeles, where um, the snitch had fabricated the confessions of other inmates like in many different scenarios and leveraged them for reduced sentences uh, because like he, he, it was a scam. Like he figured out this is the way to do it. Um, And so it's a very problematic practice to rely on jailhouse informants who have every motive and incentive to try and provide this information. And I'll even complicate the picture because um, one thing that the Supreme court has said is any information that a prosecutor has about one of the prosecution's witnesses that would only tend to impeach that witness's credibility to make them look bad, um, but isn't affirmatively exonerating of the defendant, is not subject to pre-plea disclosure. That makes so, sense. Yes. So that's they said like impeachment information, the prosecution doesn't have to disclose before a plea. So the, poli- the the prosecutor could rely on a government snitch, provide that person with a financial incentive or reduced time in prison if that person testifies against the defendant and never tell the defense attorney that that deal had been made before a plea is extracted. Wow. Yeah. That's a problem. That's a huge problem. And and the fact that these juries listen to these people who had every incentive in the whole world to lie. And I think the, uh, the tactics in the, in the, uh, just mercy movie were, were horrific and, and, and people should definitely watch that movie and see, but that happened in Kenny's trial. It's happened lots of different trials where these are just opportunists and, Either, you know, the, the one in Kenny's trial, the prosecutor and the cops 
gave him the police report and said, read this, here are some facts. Uh, they left the room. I mean, he was dealing with bad prosecutors, bad, I mean, bad everything. So yeah. I, I, I uh, we're, we're over an hour. I promised you only an hour. I feel like we have five episodes that we need to, to come back for. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, in everything you've seen and all the years you've been doing this and working with the Innocent Project and, and being a professor and doing, still doing public defender work through the appellate process, is there, is there a, is there a magic bullet? Is there, is there, what, what should we be focusing on to rectify this system right now? So I think the first thing I would say is, as is true with any systemic problem, there's not one thing that we have to do to solve it. There's going to need to be interventions at multiple points. I think a lot of people have been focused on a couple of things that have happened that give us room for hope, right? One is there does tend to be a lot more bipartisan, bipartisan support for uh, criminal justice reform in this country than existed a number of years ago. I think the people who are considered the right on crime or the smart on crime folks, the more conservative leaning folks, see the fiscal consequences of overcriminalization. They see how much it costs to imprison people. And the, the libertarians are concerned about the way in which people are being treated. And obviously, the liberals are concerned about the ways in which this is affecting the black and brown communities and the way people's rights are being you know, trampled on throughout our system. So there is more room now for legislative interventions to try and get better discovery rules or to get no cash bail, right, or to make some improvements in the system. That's one good thing. Another good thing that I think is happening is you do see a wave of more progressive prosecutors being elected around this country. I think like if you look at a Chesa Boudin in San Francisco, who is a former public defender, who has parents who have been through the system, who believes in treating people with dignity and, humil and humanity and respect, who understands that you know not everything is about just extracting a pound of flesh from people, that you will see less punitive practices, more open discovery, more willing willingness to say, I'm not going to overcharge for smaller things, et cetera. And that's a positive development that we're seeing. If you were to ask me, I think a lot of people think that's the solution. And I'm not one of the people who thinks that the progressive prosecution elections will solve everything because I am way too attuned to the Willie Horton effect, which is as soon as something goes terribly awry, prosecutors are elected and the electorate is fickle and it will turn on the progressive prosecutors and you can they can just be voted out of office and a lot of the reforms that they make can be pulled back. I think in any system like ours, the person who is always supposed to be the one who stands up and calls a foul when the system tries to railroad people is the defense attorney. Like the defense attorney is the one who has the incentive and the role to fight for the criminal defendants in the system, to challenge the forensic testimony, to challenge the mistaken eyewitness ID, to find out what's going on with the, the informants, and to give a voice to the people who otherwise are forced to be voiceless in this system. So I am a big proponent of ensuring that there is a robust defense function. The judges and the prosecutors will come and go. They often are subject to election. The defense attorney is a constant in the system who is supposed to be the vigilant protector of the defendant's rights. And if you have a robust defense function, a client-centered, zealous advocate, then you will have them challenging the informants, 
the junk science, the false confessions, the mistaken eyewitness identifications, and you will have a system that is not able to hide these things and railroad people the way the system currently is. So it's a really interesting point there because I agree with you. And I, I think I brought it up earlier in the podcast, but to me, that's ground zero. Yeah. That's where it all starts. And if you have a, a zealous defense attorney at the very beginning, they can at least make enough noise and, and, yeah. and be like you in that district court and go in there and say, I want this, I want that. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to, you know, railroad us. But that is going to be hard to change. That ship is going to take a long time to turn, hopefully not too long, um, that, that we are now looking at these things. And I don't know who's vetting these attorneys. I don't mm -hmm. know how good they are. In all the cases I'm going through, they're either on drugs, they're drinking, they're getting disbarred, they're disciplined multiple times, but yet they're still being appointed. Yeah. And they're giving money to the judges, or they used to be giving money to the judges yes. who are running for election. Yes. Another discussion, another podcast. Um who, who shouldn't be getting favors and shouldn't be getting these 6,000, 10,000 cases. But they, in order to make a decent living, 500 times whatever, you have to have a lot of cases. And so, if, yeah. if, a, if a client looks at you and says, I didn't do it, they're like, come on, dude, they got all this evidence, sign it. I need to make my 500 bucks and go on to the next guy who's down there. To try a case screws up this guy's two weeks of billings or three weeks of billings. It's, it, you know, the economics just, they just don't work for people who make a living doing that. And enough people like me are not doing pro bono work. We do some, I don't know, you know, we're trying to get more into it, but I'm not an expert in it. So I'm trying to learn so I can get my teeth in it so I can have my lawyers do more pro bono work, um, which I think is important to yeah. have, zealous attorneys do it, but yet I, we're not skilled yet to do that. So that's another probably well, podcast. Yeah. But th I mean, this is where the, th what the Michigan Indigent Defense Commission is doing comes into play, right? They are setting forth standards to address a lot of the problems that you're talking about. Like make sure that the lawyers are knowledgeable in the criminal law, make sure they have independence from the judiciary, make sure they have caseloads that enable them to perform the requisite investigation, make sure they're trained to ask for investigation and expert assistance. Like if you go through the set of all of the standards that the Michigan Indigent Defense Commission is trying to ensure get put into place, if all of those get approved and every county is required to comply with them, it should address the lion's share of the problems that you're seeing in a lot of the cases that are now cases where lawyers were appointed back before 2008 when the system was really terrible. But it's a political process, right, to get all of those standards into place. It's one of the biggest things that I think is the most important thing about the defense function is you're never going to get full funding. Right. No system is like we don't have enough funding for doctors. We don't have enough funding for schools. Sure. We don't have enough. Right. We're not going to have enough funding for indigent defense. So there's always going to be some tax on the system. But what you need is to ensure that there is a culture of zealous, vigorous representation. And you get that when you have a group of like minded lawyers who are housed together in public defenders offices with leadership that is training them and supervising them and telling them, look, you are on the front lines of the fight for civil rights in this country. It is your job 
to give a voice to people who are being railroaded by the system. And you are not going to go in there and just capitulate, right, when the prosecutor tries to pressure you or if the judge tries to violate your client's rights. You are going to stand up and fight. And if a public defender office that represents over 80% of the poor people in the system. That's a, a lot of power when you represent over 80% of the docket, because if every public defender says, not on my watch, that has the power to effectuate real change in the system. But you have to have the right culture infused into that public defender agency to make it happen. And that's what I'm hoping is going to come out of what the Indigent Defense Commission is doing here in Michigan and what I hope will happen in other states as lawsuits trigger similar kinds of reforms in those states. But you're right. It's a process. I mean, anything to resolve a systemic problem is going to be a process. But I am hopeful that it's possible. Me too. Well, as a courtesy to your time, we're going to end now, but I'd love to invite you back. I've learned a ton. Hang on the line for a second. Um, sure. We're going to wrap up this podcast. I got a couple questions for you, I want to ask you offline, Ryan. Let's thank Professor Eve Primus for being with me today, talking all things in the criminal law, exonerations, wrongful convictions. If you have not read about this, if you have not watched our podcasts with Aaron Salter and Kenny Wanenko, we've done a couple on him. Please watch them. Read Kenny's book. I'm in the middle of it right now. It's fascinating, deliberate injustice, getting all the details um, of his trial and everything that he went through. Watch the movie, Just Mercy, another fascinating movie. I watched it with my 17-year-old daughter yesterday. We were both crying throughout this movie. Um, really puts into perspective what we've been talking about this last hour plus uh, with Professor Primus. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends. Subscribe to the Open the Open. Mike podcast on uh, YouTube or on wherever you get your podcasts, share it with friends, like it, comment, whatever you want to do. So thank you for being here for another episode and we'll see you next time. You never know who you're going to see. Be one guy one-on-one -on -one my whole career. What you're going to hear. We got a lot of desperate people in the city. On my podcast, Open Mic. Find it where you find your podcasts.